I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, well, they've done it. The Bank of England has pushed up interest rates, adding to the burden on mortgage holders and indirectly renters too. So have they gone nuts? putting up interest rates when the economy is so weak? We'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, a few weeks back, the Financial Conduct Authority published their Financial Lives survey. One of the key findings was that one in six of us say we would struggle if monthly payments on our mortgage increased by less than £50. Now, that's not a big margin. And half of those renting would struggle if they had to pay up to an extra £100 a month. Half of them. The worst age group is those aged 25 to 34, almost a quarter of which are over-indebted, to use the Financial Conduct Authority's terminology. And they account for more than a third, this age group, of new mortgages, and I suspect also some of the biggest mortgages. So why, with so many people struggling, why would the Bank of England push up interest rates today? Now, admittedly, a quarter percent rise adds only £10 or £20 to the average mortgage, but that's the average. Those struggling the most will be, of course, those with higher mortgages. In fact, the number of people taking out a mortgage worth half a million pounds or more in 2016 is well over double the level of just four years ago and more than 10% higher than it was just before the financial crisis hit when everyone was a bit crazy. And conversely, those taking out a mortgage of less than £120,000 has fallen threefold since 2007. So bigger mortgages all around and an acknowledgement from the Financial Conduct Authority of mortgage stress. So given all of this, why would the Bank of England push up rates and impose this burden on a country where wages are going backwards? According to figures from the Office of National Statistics, wages in the three months to August 2017 were 0.3% lower in real terms than they were the year before, allowing for the rise in consumer prices. In fact, real wages are no higher now than they were in February 2006. So isn't it counterintuitive to push up interest rates and make people have even less money as they have to pay more to cover their mortgage? So given all of this, Steve, why does the Bank of England think this is a good idea? I think because they've they've fallen into believing that the economy's recovered from the crisis they didn't see coming. And now what they're trying to do is to say, let's um, let's you know, slow down this booming economy because the unemployment rate has got down to being historically low. So if you look at the unemployment rate now, it's down to well below 5%. It's actually running at uh, at 4.4% right now. Mm. And that seems like an incredibly low unemployment rate. In fact, it's lower than that than back in 2005 before the sort of early warning bells of the crisis came along. The crisis beginning in 2008, unemployment was at that stage was 5%. It exploded up to um, over eight percent, and then it's now down to back uh, down below five again. So, the, well, the economy has reached equilibrium, 
It's gone past equilibrium. And let's push it back to equilibrium again by putting the rate up slightly. Yeah, because the, the big fear, isn't it, that, that, that if uh, they don't push up interest rates, then inflation all of a sudden is going to burst out from nowhere, even mm. though uh, everywhere around the world, it seems, we've got low, uh, low unemployment and uh, still no sign of inflation picking up. Yeah, and this is because they, they've got these two basic indicators. That they, I mean, they've got... They, they talk about the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate, they relate to the level of uh, economic capacity. So they've got an idea of what they, they see, the capacity level of economic uh, growth, the actual level of economic growth, and the unemployment rate as a bit of an indicator where you're above or below that capacity level, given where the unemployment rate's above or below what they call the natural rate of interest, of which there is no such bloody thing, but it's something Milton Friedman invented, so they, they spend their time trying to find this natural rate. So those are what you can call flow variables, they're not stock variables. Uh, and the stock variable, as usual, that I have to focus upon, not because I like it, but because the mainstream ignores it, is the level of private debt. Mm. <laughs> and, and in that case, what they think is returning to equilibrium uh, is anything but, again, just even on that very simple basis of, uh, you know, what was the unemployment rate at the, before the crisis began? And uh, back to that, again, it was 5% back in 2008. Well, if you go to 2008, I asked, what was the debt level in 2008? Then your debt level, uh, well, they, they, that's, that's the one they're ignoring. Actually, the debt level then was higher now than, than it is now. That's fallen as well. But that level is rising once more. Yeah. So what you're getting, what you're getting is a boom in the economy, uh, largely QE playing a major factor in that, in my opinion, because they're really the only source of an increase in the money supply and increase in demand has been the Bank of England's quantitative easing program, tiny bits of it leaking through to the real economy and causing additional demand there while the government tries to run a, run a surplus in, and you know, in, insanely in the, for the private sector was deleveraging for a long while as well. But the private sector started leveraging up again uh, in about 2015. And since about uh, 2015, uh, credit's gone from zero, was actually minus, was it was uh, minus 3% of GDP back in 2014. It's gone from that up to at the moment running at about uh, close to 10% of GDP. But uh, won't that slow? I mean, wouldn't arguably putting the interest rates up um, help to reduce the amount of credit? Yeah, it will. And this is what happened in Japan. And this is why I've said the world's turned Japanese, because the Japanese made the same mistake with the same sort of short-sighted economics. It doesn't looks at the flow, vari- flows, flow variables, unemployment, uh, inflation rate and so on doesn't look at the stock variable of debt because according to the theories, it doesn't matter. And what happened whenever the, uh, the Central Bank of Japan would decide that things have improved so we can either stop our QE program or we can put rates up, the economy would tank because what was actually going on was people were borrowing money once more. That credit-based demand was adding to an extreme level of private debt, which had been accumulated in the bubble economy period. The increase in the interest rate didn't just uh, change how desirable it was to take an investment position, which is the way that the conventional theory thinks about what interest rate uh, changes to put the rate up. Uh, it makes uh, the reduces net present value of future investments. Therefore, there'll be less investment demand. What it does is it causes people's incomes to take because they're paying the interest not just on the on the change in credit. They're paying interest on the outstanding level of debt, and since the outstanding level of debt is you know, three to four times what it was historically, that tiny increase in the interest rate can force people into bankruptcy. It can certainly encourage them to say, I can't service this level of debt. And because that servicing cost is extreme, 
then those tiny increases in interest rates can be enough to stop people from taking out money. So credit goes from positive to negative and you go from a boom to a slump right. very, very rapidly. And, and Japan's been doing that for 25 years now. But it would also stop people taking out newer loans. Um, I mean, I'm trying to figure out what's good, a low interest rate or a high interest rate. Which one is better for the economy? I mean, I would have thought a higher one is going to be better if it's going to stop people from um, sort of overstretching themselves. Well, they've already overstretched. This is the trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we've overstretched in the UK's case by a factor of three and a half. Of, of, again, looking at historical levels, with, with the peak level of being 75% of GDP uh, for a century, and now the level is 160% of GDP. And, uh, you know, you, you simply, in any change you make to the cost of money in terms of the interest rate, dramatically increases the servicing cost of outstanding debt. And the mainstream ignore this because they think, well, that means people who've got the debt are going to have more money which they can spend. They're seeing this loanable funds idea that one individual lending to another and therefore uh, when the person who decides they can't service the debt anymore pays their debt down, the person who lent the money gets more money and they can spend more and the two cancel each other out. Therefore, you can ignore the aggregate level of debt because that's a bullshit model and the real model is the banks create money by creating debt. And if you pay the debt off, you're actually reducing the amount of money supply, money in, in existence. Uh, that causes a slump. And so what we have seen with the Bank of, with the Bank, Bank of Japan is every time they think that things have got back to normal on their flow variables, just looking at the rate of interest and the rate of interest, the rate of, rate of inflation and the uh, rate of unemployment, whenever they think the economy is recovering a bit, then they put the interest rate up thinking that's going to sort of a bit like simmering, causing the oven to simmer. You turn it down from boiling, you know, burning the potatoes to uh, to uh, cooking them nicely. Instead, you go from having them in the on the stove to putting them in the freezer. And it's a complete flip over because that credit-based demand disappears. You go into deleveraging, and the deleveraging mean unemployment expands once more, and you go back into a crisis once more. So I hope, unfortunately, uh, that the J- the Bank of England gets that experience because they might be in a situation to intellectually understand what the hell's happening now if they listen to the research stuff. But, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's perhaps less likely to happen here than it is in other places because the UK interest rate before this was 0.25% compared to Canada, yeah. which is 075 In the US, it's 1.25. In Australia, it's 1.5. And surely there's a, a, a real disadvantage in having interest rates that are lower than anybody else's because who's going to want to buy your government bonds, for example, or in fact, any company bonds for that matter? I mean, there's a disadvantage, isn't there, in, in being quite, so, lo- sense, quite no, so low comparatively? No. There's never been, a, I, I don't, I, and certainly in Australia's case, I know this is the fact, and in America is as well, I presume in the UK as well, there's never been a government bond issue which has been undersubscribed. Mm. If it were all like corporate bonds might be a different story, but then again, you're selling to, if you're selling to local institutions, uh, then the, whether the interest rate's higher or lower than the overseas, it doesn't really matter. Yep. The main the main thing about a higher interest rate, uh, and this was the situation for Australia for some substantial time, is you get an overvalued currency out of it. So I wouldn't worry about the international comparisons so, so much. The good the good point is is that because rates are so low, then increase in interest rates won't have much of an impact for a while. But if you get to the stage where rates hit two and three percent, then you're going to have the economy tanking very very badly, and that's what I expect the Americans are going to find or they can continue putting back to what they see as normal because this is the real danger. The economists in charge of this believe the normal rate of interest should, should be 4%. Mm. 
Inflation, mm. inflation rate should be two, growth rate three, interest rate four. And we're a long, way, talk- long way off all of those, of course. Abs- yeah, well, they're getting close to the um, the unemployment rate seems to be getting back to the level they think is, think is you know, normal or below normal. They're amazed the inflation is still lower than they thought it would be. The growth rate appears to be back to the 3% level if you're looking at the American data. So they're, they're thinking most stuff is normal. Let's start edging the interest rate up as well towards what we think is normal, which is 4%. Yeah. At a 4% but, rate of interest, it would uh, it would cruel the American economy and it will go into a slump. But no one's got the full set, have they? So America's got the GDP figures. Uh, they haven't mm. got the inflation figures. We've got the inflation figures in the UK, but we haven't got the G- our, our GDP is running at 1.5% per year uh, currently. But, I mean, of course, our inflation is largely uh, because of the, the weakening value of sterling but isn't that actually isn't lifting interest rates couldn't that help because if we've got a higher interest rate isn't that a good way of you know you get more foreign investment in the country so it strengthens the pound so that you know if we strengthen the pound then that's going to solve the problem with with more expensive imports so it could actually reduce the inflation caused by this poor exchange rate and help reduce the the food bill for the for the average brit i'm going to give you the gough whitlam award for intellectual thinking on economics for that one uh, <laughs> are you being sarcastic now or not of course I am, uh, because one thing Gough Whitlam thought would cut inflation back was the 25% tariff cut overnight without warning to Australian industry back in 1973-74. And uh, he seriously went to his grave believing they cut back the inflation rate. It actually rose after the experience. And, of course, what it did do was decimate the Australian the manufacturing sector. And the last thing the UK needs to do is to do more to decimate this industrial sector. So I'd, I'm not about to encourage interest rates to encourage capital inflows into the UK. Uh, sorry, right. no, but, I won't but, buy but, that one. But we do have, an, I mean, you'd agree that most of the inflation that we're seeing right now is temporary inflation, and that is because the because uh, the pound is devalued. I mean, 75% yeah. of the, the, the food that we're buying from overseas is being bought from, from Europe, and the uh, the euro's been going strong, and the pound's been getting yeah. weaker. Yeah, but it, um, so I don't think the inflation figures are going to necessarily be sustained for the UK. They certainly... The, the domestic wage rises certainly aren't enough to continue it into the future. But, uh, you know, we do have a, a, a – is the Bank of England gone mad? Uh, it's gone back to the textbook. Mm. And that's pretty much the definition of going mad. But they are talking small increments, aren't they? And don't you get the feeling that uh, reserve banks are sort of feeling their way a little bit? I mean, is, is a quarter of a percent here and there? So Canada put their interest rate up from 0.5 to 0.75. Now they've decided they're going to sit on their hands. They don't, they don't want to go anywhere uh, because, uh, you know, because they think they've gone far enough. So these small moves aren't going to change the world, are they? Not, a, not going to change the world, but again, compared to the scale of inter- debt when interest rates uh, were move sort of 1% levels rather than the quarter percent now, you are talking four to eight times the debt to GDP ratio. So it's tiny, uh, but it can have more of an impact because, again, the level of outstanding debt is, you know, in, in the UK's case, three and a half times what it was back when they used to make 1% movements in the rate of interest rather than quarter percent movements. So they're, uh, they are going to find... What they, what they think they're fine-tuning uh, what is actually like a crisis mechanism rather than a fine-tuning mechanism. So and they, that's what I'm, I'm – they'll keep on going for a while and then it will tank and they won't know why. So if – I mean, if everyone else is raising their interest rates and, and the UK doesn't. So, the, I mean, the UK is mm-hmm. remarkably – you know, it is pretty much uh, there with Japan – uh, compared with the rest of the world, if, if it uh-huh. just kept it low and the US continued to rise, maybe you know up to one and a half, maybe up to two percent, 
What does that mean for the UK? Well, it's a possibility of a carry trade developing, and that is people using money in the UK to go and buy American bonds and things of that nature. Uh, they, they, they call them Mrs. Watanabe trade because of mainly Japanese, actually dentists more than any other social group. But uh, Mrs. Watanabe, the, the Japanese housewife who uh, takes out a, a deposit in an Australian uh, buys Australian bonds and gets both a high rate of interest and a capital appreciation out of the rising Australian exchange rate, which is caused by the level of foreign foreign borrowing, uh, foreign buying of Australian bonds. So the UK could have a, a phenomenon like that. But I think uh, I don't think anything is going to be permanent enough to lead to that sort of situation uh, again, because all these economies that are trying to raise the rates right now are going to find themselves slowing down much faster than they expected and going into reverse again. So um, I, I wouldn't be worried about a Mrs. Watanabe effect for the UK pound. And I think anything which keeps the UK pound below the levels it reached prior to Brexit are a good idea anyway. So all the banks that are now lifting interest rates, you, you think they really are going to step back and uh, pretty much return to where they are now and perhaps a bit lower maybe in the case of the states? Yeah, I mean, th- this is really... So remember central banks thought they had it all under control by using what's called the Taylor rule. And this is the rule that um, mm. uh, the, the normal inflation rate should be 2%. Uh, the normal real interest rate should also be 2%. And uh, what you do with the economy is operating below capacity, then, uh, and, and, and that's giving you falling inflation below that 2% level, uh, then you cut interest rates twice as fast as the fall in inflation. If inflation is rising, you increase rates twice as fast as the increase in inflation. That's, that's the basic logic. It was a fine-tuning mechanism. And right up until September and October of 2007, uh, the person originated a model who's actually one of the candidates for the uh, Federal Reserve Chief, uh, Taylor, thought it was all a lot of fun. Uh, I don't think you realise that the fund all came to an end in 2000 and 2008. So they're, they're seeing themselves as fine-tuning uh, what is actually part of a crisis mechanism. And that's why I think uh, this particular move by the Bank of England, they, they get away with one, two, or three, or four rate rises, but then suddenly find bang demand falls over much, much faster than they thought. They'll never get back to their 4% normal. Well, we'll uh, watch this space. The good news is, it seems, if the latest rate rise is putting pressure or will put pressure on your cost of living, you're not alone. And by the sounds of things, it's not going to last too long. But how much damage will it do to the UK economy in the meantime? Now, next time on the Debunking Economics podcast, capitalism without the capital. Remember the old days when we saved to get ahead? And the driving force was doing well, so we could own more of our own stuff. A, uh, a nice car, a new house. The more we had, the more comfortable we felt. Uh, well, how much of that is now disappearing? As we rent rather than buy. We subscribe to things rather than owning things. Our assets are very low, but our expenses are high. How does that change the driving force of the economy? That's next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.